I never introduced myself. For those of you guys that don't know me, my name is Matt Larson, and I'll be uh, preaching from the scriptures today. So uh, you have on your seats a sheet of paper. Uh, the computer team, again, was kind of joking with me this morning that they were inputting half the Bible into the computer to get ready for the message today. Uh, and so I printed this up for you, and this is for two purposes. One is so that you can follow along and just have some of the scriptures that uh, we'll be using to walk through these different things that we're talking about. But two, is at the end of the day, I'm going to encourage you or even challenge you to pick one or two of these character qualities of God uh, to spend some time meditating on later this week or as you go through the week. And so the paper's there for you to take with you and even just have as, some, uh, as a, a thing to take notes on, um, but also just so you don't get lost in the midst of me walking through these things full speed. So um, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. Two, uh, two things with this series. We're in a series called Frameworks, where we're actually taking time to walk through what we believe uh, is true about God. And a lot of this is built on this idea of if, if the God of the Bible is true, then what should we believe about him? And the idea being, we don't want to come in here dogmatically and say, this is what every single human being has to believe or else. Like that, that actually would be a little bit terrifying to us because I, I have a feeling in humility that we're going to stand before the Lord and all of us are going to have gotten something wrong. Amen? There's something that you don't have right. Can you believe that to be true? Uh, yeah. I remember when I was getting ready to go to seminary, my dad was actually telling me, he said, you're going to read a lot of books in all of them, 60% is good, 40%, he said crap, 40% is crap. I don't know if you like that word or not. But uh, he was saying that, and I'm like, okay, so is that also true if I ever write a book? Like, I, you know, I just, I feel like there's going to be something about that. And I, so I like to hold that, just to, don't use that metric for the sermon. Hopefully it's more than 60%. I'd like to get more of a passing grade than that. But the, uh, the point is, we want to approach this with the humility of saying, um, if we look at what the scriptures teach about God, these are the things that we, would, that we would come to the conclusion of. If this is who God is, let's talk about it. Let's know what we believe. Let's understand what the dynamics of those things are. So we're walking through this series. We're talking about God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the church, heaven and hell, the last things, uh, sanctification, salvation, a lot of things about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what the Bible says about those things. And we're teaching them with the intention of building out our worldview. What do we believe? Now, the second thing about this series is we decided to break up each of the messages to where I'll be teaching through some of the, the core doctrinal components, and then I've asked a group of other people to come in and share, uh, to close out with 15 or so minutes of answering the question, why is this good news? So last week, Kyle Rogan shared, why is this good news? Today, it'll be Kristen Larson, my wife, will be sharing, why is this good news? And these are important things to take the, the doctrinal components and say, okay, why does that matter? Why does this shape us? And then why does it matter to people out there in the world? Why would this be good news uh, to the world? So that's what we're going to be getting into. Today, we're talking in our second week on God, we're talking about his character, God's character. The theological term is God's communicable attributes. And what essentially that means is that we're talking about what is true about God that we can imitate or develop. Last week, we talked about God's incommunicable attributes, the things that are true about God that will never be true about us. God is omniscient. We will never be all-knowing. God is omnipotent. We will never be all-powerful. Those are things that, that can never be true about us but are true about God. And this week, we're talking... What are the things that are true about God, his character, 
that is there for us to imitate, for us to develop, for us to grow into. So that's the communicable attributes of God. You have the list in front of you. Uh, The reality is, if we were to go through the Bible, there would probably be 30 or 40 character traits that you could find the Bible using to describe God. Uh, What a lot of theologians have done is taken those and kind of put them into categories. And those categories are generally represented in the words that we're talking about today. And a lot of them have different nuances, and that's beautiful and great, but we wouldn't walk through 40 attributes today. We're going to walk through 10. So even that is going to take us a good chunk of time to get through. Uh, I'm going to share some pretty orderly and and kind of structured stuff, and then Kristen's going to bring a lot of life. I have a feeling you're going to like her a lot better than me today. That's fine, but I want you to take good notes and walk with me through this because I think it's really good stuff. So you guys ready? Okay, I heard one yes from John. Thank you, John. I appreciate that. Uh, All right. Let's talk about God being holy. Now, it may make you chuckle a little bit that our first communicable attribute is the holiness of God because the word holy, the actual word holy means separate or set apart. And it's most commonly used in reference to God's absolute moral purity. That God is holy means that there is no sin in him whatsoever. So a couple of the scriptures that reference this, Psalm 99 verse 9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain in Jerusalem, for the Lord our God is holy. He's absolutely pure and right and good and true. Uh, Isaiah 6 verses 1 through 3 says this, It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's a quote from a theologian named J.I. Packer. And he says it this way. He says, The word holy signifies everything about God that sets him apart from us and makes him an object of awe, adoration, and dread to us. Now, I brought this quote in because that word dread is kind of a weird one to think about. That God would actually be intimidating or make us afraid. And you may have seen all throughout the scriptures, there's a call to fear God. There's this invitation to fear God, and it can kind of maybe be a hard thing to think. What do I do with being afraid of God? That, that would be a strange thing if the Bible wants me to be afraid of God. And it's, it's an interesting thing to think about because God frequently invites us into his presence. He wants us with him. But there's something true about God's holiness that the more that we come to be aware of God's holiness, the more we will see our own sinfulness. And the opposite is true. The more that we see our own sinfulness, the more we become aware of God's absolute moral purity. And that gap does leave us in dread. It leaves us in fear. We realize how far from God we truly are when it comes to the, the moral uprightness that is in us. Now, there's a bridge to that gap, and that's the whole conversation about Jesus and redemption and salvation and sanctification, but the absolute reality of the gap between God and us, the more that becomes apparent, the more it does cause us to fear God. But what we find from the scriptures is that fear actually is a part of our worship. The acknowledgement that God is holy becomes a part of our worship. 
the understanding that he is absolute moral purity and I am not, that becomes a part of our worship and that becomes a very important part of our doctrine, our understanding of who God is, is that there is a difference between God and man. And Kristen, I'll talk about this a bit, but there is this invitation into God's holiness. And that's a, it's a hard thing for some of us to wrap our heads around, but it's an important thing to know that that's a communicable attribute of God, not something that we can never imitate. We are invited into the holiness of God. Okay, now let's talk about God being just. God's justice means that he always acts consistently with what is right and fair and that he himself is the final standard of what is right and fair. A couple of passages, Deuteronomy 32, 4. He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong how just and upright he is. Psalm 19.8, the commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. As a result of God's justice, that's where we actually get the idea of God punishing sin. Uh, You'll notice that God's wrath is not one of the character qualities of God that we uh, point out because wrath is not a character quality. It's a reaction to his justice. Because God is a just God, there's wrath. Justice leads to wrath. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, Let's just say there was a courtroom scene and there's a guy uh, convicted of murder and he did it, absolutely did it. All the evidence points to that he did it. He's convicted. And then the judge says, all right, man, you're convicted, you're guilty of murder, you're free to go. The world would melt into a million pieces because that's injustice. The, the fact that he was not rightly punished for that crime is an injustice. It, it actually points to, no, there's something wrong with that. And so justice is rightly punishing things that are wrong. That's part of justice. Okay, if you're a parent of a kid older than the age of six, all right, so just, I know that's not everybody in the room, but let's just say you're a parent of a kid older than the age of six. Uh, as you were becoming a parent and young parenthood, there were a number of phrases that your parents said to you that you said, I'm just not ever going to say those phrases to my kids, right? One of them might be, I will turn this car around. Maybe you just said, I'm never going to say that. Like my dad said that all the time. I'm never going to say that. Uh, One of them is, uh, guys, Disneyland burned down, so it's closed. I'm never going to say that to my kids, even though my dad said that to me. I'm not going to say that one to my kids. Um, But another one uh, is when your kid says, that's not fair, It's like from somewhere deep inside of you, and it comes out, and before you even get a chance to stop it, the I'll show you what's fair just kind of lands on them. It just kind of like like pours out of them, out of us. I'll show you what's fair. And the reality is, if any of us were to ever experience true fairness, it would be the end of us. If we were ever to receive what we truly deserve, true fairness, That would not be a good thing. The older you get in life, the less that phrase, that's not fair, comes out of your mouth. Not because life has become more equitable, but because you realize that true fairness is not something I want. I actually lean on things being advantageous towards me. I lean on mercy being shown to me. God's justice is a part of who he is. It's in his character. 
There's another aspect of God's justice. So that's kind of God's like universal justice when it comes to right and wrong, sin and holiness. But then there's also this justice on earth where God actually brings his character quality of justice into our horizontal world and he asks us to live out justice by showing equity or fairness to people that are less privileged than us, that have less in life or that are uh, outcasts, that are marginalized. So Micah 6.8, sorry, I had it, and then I turned it. Here we go. Micah 6.8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. When we're commanded to do justice, that's not God saying, hey, I want you to rightly judge sin from not sin. That's not the justice he's inviting us into. That's a justice that's reserved explicitly for God. The justice that he invites us into is to, from our perspective, how do we bring people that are in that sub-fair category, life has been disadvantageous to them, how do we be a blessing to them? How do we minister to them? How do we encourage them? That's the justice that God brings to us and encourages us to live out. And that is part of God's justice as well as he does do work to right some of our world's injustices. Okay, that's God's justice. Now let's go to God is merciful. God's mercy in the Hebrew scriptures, the word is rahum. I just share that because I know how to say it and it's comforting to actually say it. Rahum is the mercy of God. And there's something very cool about that word. The root word of rahum is the same word for womb, like a mother's womb. This is actually the most maternal word that God uses to describe himself. He actually articulates to humanity often that he's like a father, but here he's essentially saying, and I'm like a mother as well. There's this element of God's mercy that exists, and that word rahum is a deep love rooted in some natural bond. That's why the mother, the womb, like the, even the physical umbilical cord, there's a, a bond from mother to child, and that's part of this compassion that's built from the mom towards that child. So a deep love rooted in some natural bond. It's used for the deep inward feeling that we know variously as compassion and pity. Now, pity sounds, you know, kind of like, I think Mr. T sort of ruined pity for us, but pity is essentially, as a very dated reference. Thank you for those of you that, that laughed at that. Uh, but the idea of pity is actually, it's a good thing that we're moved to compassion. That's what pity ultimately is, is we're moved to compassion to love somebody or to show grace to somebody. So a couple of passages, Exodus 34, verse 6, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and compassion. This passage is unbelievable. God is telling us about himself, himself and he says, look, this goes on. My mercy goes on for generations. He says, keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations. That's Exodus 34. Deuteronomy 4:31. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Lamentations 3, and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This means that God's internal actions towards us come from a place of mercy. 
And this is held in tension with his justice. So God's justice and God's mercy are often viewed as two contrasting qualities that are held in tension. And we'll talk about that as we go on. But I want you to hear that. God is a God of justice, but he's a God of mercy who is bent towards compassion and pity. Help. That's God's nature. That's God's character. That's who he is. Okay, the next one we'll look at is that God is truthful. One of God's character qualities is that he is inherently truthful, meaning he always speaks what is truthful and he does not deceive. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 and 18 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. As a long passage to pull out one piece where the author of Hebrews is telling us it is impossible for God to lie. Now, if you remember, remember, not remember, remember back to last week, we talked about God's omnipotence, that he's all-powerful. But the idea of God being all-powerful has limitations, that God is always able to do what he decides to do is his all-powerfulness, his omnipotence, but that he will only decide to do what is within his character as part of the gift that God gives to us. So the authors of the Bible, the Holy Spirit, can say it is impossible for God to lie. Paul tells it to Titus as well, Titus 1-2, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Again, Paul's view of God is that he never lies. There's no deceit in him. Nothing comes out of God that is not fully and completely truthful. We see when Jesus enters into the picture that he is the physical embodiment of God, and he declares, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Jesus is saying, I am the truth. He's the physical embodiment of the truth that is God. When God speaks to us, he is always truthful. It's in his character to be truthful. And what that means is that he is trustworthy, that God is able to be trusted because no word that proceeds from God is in any way deceitful or a lie at all. Now, Take that truthfulness and add to it that God is wise. Not only is God truthful, but he is also wise. The wisdom of God is the characteristic that describes that God will always choose the best goals and the best means to achieve those goals. God's wisdom, it takes us out of his omniscience, his, his all knowledge, and out of his truthfulness, that he is always truthful, and it helps us understand that God reveals the right things at the right time. He speaks the right words to the right people in the right places. God's wisdom actually decides when it is best to reveal certain things in certain places. Can you imagine? This is, there's a good reason that we're not omniscient, that we're not all-knowing. We would melt if we knew everything. It would be so overwhelming to our minds if we knew everything. And God has, in his wisdom, kept us from all knowledge. He has chosen what to and when to reveal to us certain things, and that's God's wisdom. Okay, a couple of passages to talk about this. 
Uh, Romans 16, 27, all glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Job 12, 13, true wisdom and power are found in God. Counsel and understanding are his. Psalm 104, 24, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. If I encourage you to do a, a, like a Bible study on the wisdom of God, it would take you years to mine all of the passages that talk about the wisdom of God. It is one of the most talked about character qualities of God, that he is wise. And it's part of what's our understanding of God is that he gives us wisdom for life. He gives us his wisdom to walk in. It's called the way of wisdom in Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. There's that picture that the way of wisdom is actually, it's like walking on a straight road. That's the picture. James 1, 5 tells us, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. And what we learned from that is there's no end to the amount of wisdom that God has. And anybody that asks for it, it's yours. God will give you wisdom for every circumstance that you are in because he has wisdom for every circumstance that you're in. If you're trying to remember wisdom, this is uh, one of my favorite quotes from Terry Fouché. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. It's just helping you with the decision-making to know what's right and what's inappropriate. Because you would be canceled if you put tomatoes in a fruit salad. I think that's just true in life. All right. God is patient. God's patience is his goodness in withholding due punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. Okay? God's patience is his goodness in withholding due punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. This is a really important thing to understand uh, because if you have sinned any time recently, you may have noticed that you were not immediately punished for that sin. You might have noticed that, that actually you didn't experience the instant wrath of God when you chose to sin, and that's been true over the course of human history that not every sin results in immediate punishment. And that's because God is patient. He withholds due punishment toward those who sin over a period of time. Let's look at a couple examples. 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul's writing. He's just told Timothy that he considers himself the chief of sinners. He says, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul's saying, look, I killed Christians and Jesus didn't punish me right away. He actually, by his grace and patience, brought me into his story and showed me his redemptive power. All of us have experienced God's patience firsthand. All of us. God held back his wrath towards us so that we might find him. Peter writes it this way, 2 Peter 3, 14 and 15. Therefore, beloved... Since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Peter says this, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God has demonstrated immense patience with us. It's something that we actually, on some levels, we, we, we count on the patience of God. We know that it's going to be there. Uh, one author that I was reading said that it's the, most commonly, it's the most common point of frustration for followers of God is his patience because they want justice on other people. Like Jonah with the Ninevites, God, I don't want to do this job because I know you're going to show them mercy. I know you're going to be patient with them. I want you to strike them down, but you're too patient for my taste. It's essentially what Jonah is saying to God. You're too patient. And when we think about that, it's so important that God is patient with us because none of us would be here without the patience of God. We needed it, and it's there. All right, God is faithful, directly connected to God's patience, and his truthfulness is God's faithfulness. His faithfulness is that he is completely reliable. God is completely reliable. He's faithful to his promises, and he will not deviate from what he has promised to do, from what he has spoken. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? 2 Samuel 7, 28, and now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. This is the faithfulness of God. You've promised it, and it will be done. God's faithfulness is what opens the door uh, for Paul and the Holy Spirit to write in Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What God has said, he will be faithful to accomplish. Even just that picture of predestination to glory, what God has said, he will do. He is faithful every time. That's God's faithfulness. God is generous. All right, the generosity of God's an attribute that we observe. There's actually not a moment where God goes to Israel and says, I, the Lord your God, am a generous God. That's just not a, a part of how he communicated, but it's something that we observe to be true about God by the way that he acts. Generosity, it means ready to distribute. When we look at God and understand his posture of love and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and grace and wisdom and help, we see that God is a generous God. That's what he does. A couple of passages on this. This is Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul's writing about this. He's saying, look, if you're in Christ like I'm in Christ, we have experienced every spiritual blessing. He expands on this in Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. God has lavished us with his grace. Not only is he ready to share, not only does he have storehouses of it, but he lavishes it. 
It's over the top. He just gives us his best, his most. That's part of his character. And maybe the most famous passage, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, or for God loved the world in this way that he gave. That's God's generosity. That he, he gave his son. There was nothing in God that required him to do this. And that's kind of the thing. There's, you're, you're not generous when you're paying your cell phone bill. right? That's not generosity to give them your $150 or whatever it is. That's, that's you owed it and you pay the bill. Generosity is when you own nothing, but you give nonetheless. That's the picture of God. He did not owe us Jesus. He did not owe us his grace. He didn't owe us anything, yet he gave. That's God's generosity. All right, God is kind. God's kindness. God's kindness is his posture of benevolence towards us. Now, this benevolence is like good works or good doing. And this stems from his generosity, and it indicates that God acts warmly towards us. There's something in him that wants to be with us, and that is God's kindness. This is Titus 3, 4, and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then one more in Romans. This one's actually in the form of a warning. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul actually warns him, God's kindness is there, but you guys are taking advantage of it. You're doing, you're doing the wrong response to what happens when you receive kindness. When you receive kindness, you're supposed to actually turn towards him. You're receiving kindness and moving away from him. So there's a warning there. We'll get to Romans in the fall. That'll be a lot of fun when we get there. But the idea is God's kindness towards humanity is there. There's something in him that desires to help. And that's ultimately at the core of kindness is helpfulness. It's a willingness to help somebody that is in greater need than you. It's part of what we're invited into as people is that we would look at the world, we would look at the needs that are out there, and there would be a willingness to help those that are in greater need than us. It's, it's ministry, it's service, it's, it's, it's the kindness of God that flows through us to help somebody else. That's what God has done towards us. He saw us in our need, in our desperation, in our brokenness, and he acted warmly towards us. He acted generously towards us. This is God's kindness. All right, now the last one is God is love. We had a, a couple of debates this week, and one of them was, do we do God as love as last, or do we do it as first? Because the reality is, the, the nature of God, the character quality of God, and his love is all-encompassing, and it actually informs every single one of these attributes. Like, if you go back and look at all of the attributes and looked at them through the lens of God is love and he is kind. God is love and he is generous. There's something about the love of God that informs all of his character qualities. But here's the reason that we did it last. It is all-encompassing, but it's actually it's part of what we are invited into to both experience for ourselves and to live out in this world 
And it's an important backdrop or foundation for how we understand God. So a couple of things about God's love. 1 John 4, 17 says this. It says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. So what we learn about the love of God is that God in his very person is love. Whatever love is that humanity has experienced and can experience and will experience, whatever that love is, it was God first. He is love. And what that means is that he actually defines love. He's the standard of love and he has issued love to us and trained us up in love. God is love. It's an important thing even to look at that second part. We love because he first loved us. Here's something that is a reality. If in some way God was able to withhold his love from us, humanity would never have loved in the first place. There is no experience of love that humanity could create on our own without first experiencing it from God. We love or we have the capacity for love because he loved us first. He showed us that love. Now, God's love didn't just appear at creation. Like all of a sudden he created, and I don't know what it was like for you guys when you had a kid, if you've had a kid before, but I felt love in a whole new way when our first son was born. Andrew's sitting right there. It was just like, I mean, I was a, a sobbing, weeping mess in the delivery room. I just, I couldn't handle myself. I was on the floor. I was a heap. I was a heap of emotion. I couldn't contain it. And I felt a love that I had never felt before. That is not God's experience at creation. At creation, yes, God loved us, but God has always been loved. Jesus says this, John 17, 24, he's speaking about the Father's love, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is why last week's message was important, that God is triune. God was all loving, and the embodiment of love and the definition of love before any of us were ever even created. And then when we were created, that love was poured out on us. And we were able to experience the love of God and then share the love of God. So this is actually an interesting one as well, that, that God's love is part of common grace. Common grace is a, a term that describes that we get to experience some of God, even if we don't know God at all. Like you could go to some other part of the world, somebody's never heard of the name of Jesus, never opened the scriptures before, and they get to experience part of God's grace because the sun is shining, they're breathing air, there's water to drink, there's relationships, husbands and wives and kids and procreation and grandkids. Those are all parts of common grace that God has allowed us to experience in his grace. And even in that, love is part of that package that the human experience of love even that came from God. And so this is where we, we actually we look to God to help us understand what love actually means. And so for a husband, we don't just say, well, I'm going to tell you what I think I should do to love my wife. We actually look to God and say, what does it mean to love my wife? And he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church who died and gave himself up for her. In Ephesians 5.25, we actually look to God to define what do I do to love? How do I love? 
We look to 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient and love is kind. Like we walk through that and we start to see, oh, oh, so the character qualities of God are expressed in how I would love somebody else. So I learn to love by knowing God. And when I know God, I start to love differently. Do you see how that works? That's why this one was last. Now I'm going to bring Kristen up. And Kristen's going to share with you guys why this stuff is good news. So Kristen, come on up. Oh, wait, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to use my mom voice and just yell really loud, but thank you for making that work for me. <laughs> um, it's really good to be with you guys this morning. I would much prefer that we were having this conversation in my living room, but I am going to imagine that, and you guys can all imagine that too, and that'll make me feel much more comfortable. But I am privileged to um, just speak about the things of Jesus today. That is an awesome privilege. Um, as we were dreaming up this series a few months ago in staff meeting, um, Ahmad brought up the idea of doing a series on doctrine, um, which we thought was really important because normally as we walk through a book of the Bible on Sunday mornings, we don't hit all of these passages all the time. I mean, he just went through half the Bible in 20 minutes. That was really well done. <laughs> um, but we don't get to do that all the time. And it's a really, it was really um, as Ahmad was talking about that, we thought that's really good for us to do, to get the big picture of what we believe about these really important things. And then someone else brought up, sorry, I don't remember who it was, if you're out there, um, a series on evangelism, like how do we be people who share the good news with those around us? And, and we thought that was really important too, and that they actually worked well together, that we need to know what we believe, and we need to know for ourselves why that's good news, and we need to know why it's good news for the person who we're going to meet this week. And you, got, you can all imagine who that is. So that's what I get to endeavor to do this morning is to answer the question, why is this good news? And to do that, we're going to walk through a couple of different things. Why is the holiness of God good news, specifically that attribute of his holiness? How is God's character communicable to us? And then why is that good news? As Matt said, there was much debate earlier this week with, um, on if we could start with the holiness of God, because as you think about God as completely separate, completely other, completely holy, that actually could be um, a hard thing for us to want to try to imitate. But ultimately, I think it was great because it encapsulates or it sets the tone for all of those other things that he talked about, mercy and justice and love and on and on. Did you notice, I actually wrote him down as he was teaching this time, how many times he said never, always, fully, completely, there is no end, reliable, he will not deviate. Those are things are true about all of God's character. Unlike us, he is perfect all the time. The truth is, is that God is perfect all the time, and that's what his holiness actually requires of him. Unlike our experience with every other human in the world, including ourselves, God walks out those things faithfully, perfectly, all the time. Matt read some of these verses, but we'll read them one more time. Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Job 34, therefore hear me, you men of understanding, Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, 
and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Psalm 92, the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Matthew 5, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Hebrews 6 told us that it is impossible for God to lie. Titus 1, in talking about the anchor of our hope, says God never lies. And in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, in those scenes where we're taken up into the throne room and the creatures are calling out, holy, 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 all the time. They're always saying that about God. He is completely morally perfect in all of his character all the time. And what his perfection means is that he cannot sin against us. On reflecting on passages like these, Jackie Hill Perry puts it this way in her book. This is a great book, by the way. It's called Holier Than Thou. She says this, God is holy. If God is holy, then he cannot sin. And if God can't sin, then he can't sin against me. And if he can't sin against me, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? I love that logic. She continues, hear this. God's words and his works can be trusted because it is impossible for God to sin against you. If he could, he would not be God. There is an untainted goodness in Jesus, the spotless Savior, the unblemished Lamb. To believe otherwise is to imagine an entirely different being. He can no more act contrary to his goodness in any of his actions than he could ungod himself. Since he is God and a holy one at that, in all of his dealings with us, he is always good, always, as in all times, consistently, perpetually, day and night. I love that and need to repeat it to myself all the time. He is always good, as in at all times, consistently, perpetually, day and night. And it's so unlike what we observe in humanity. I think it's Voltaire that said at first that in the beginning, God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. And that's a dangerous mistake for us to make. We make the mistake of thinking that God is somehow like us, and he could somehow fail at any of these things, his mercy, his justice, his love, his kindness. That wrong thinking creates a huge barrier of belief in our life, and we need to change our minds. God is not like us. He is holy, morally perfect, and that is really good news. Why? Because it means that we can trust him all the time with everything. He is perfectly good, perfectly just, perfectly wise. I think if I took a poll of the room, we could probably all agree theologically, yes, God is perfect all the time. We would all raise our hands to that. But what does that look like in our lives actually lived out? I remember uh, the first time that God challenged me with this belief and how I was going to walk it out. Um, it was 2 o'clock in the morning. I was 22 years old and a new mom. If you put those two things together, you could imagine how completely overwhelmed I was. Um, had no idea what I was doing, but I knew that I was completely exhausted, and I knew that I had an inexplicable love for this little kid in my arms. Um, we didn't actually know what we were doing, and the only way that we could figure out how to get 
Andrew to go to sleep, sorry kid, was that we would put him in his car seat, go take him in the car, he's probably three weeks old this time, take him in the car, drive him around the neighborhood, and then like tiptoe back in the house with the car seat and put it down and sleep for a couple hours. Please don't take that as parenting advice, that's terrible advice, there are much better ways. <laughs> and this particular night, I was so tired and Matt said, here, why don't I take him? I'll take him, drive him around. You get a couple hours of sleep. Don't worry about it, which is great marriage advice. That was a good move. Um, and I felt my heart completely seize with fear. Like, I just froze in that moment. And I couldn't imagine letting go control of what something that was so precious to me. Like, was, was Matt going to be as aware that I would? Would he make as good choices as I would? All of these questions going through my mind that made me absolutely freeze. And I remember God spoke to me as clearly as ever and just asked, asked me, am I trustworthy? Do you trust me with the things that are most precious to you. This gift that I have given to you that you have now quickly made a fist around and said, nobody can have it. Will you open your hand to me and trust me with him? And, and the implication of that that night was would I trust Matt with him? But ultimately what God was asking me is, am I trustworthy? Do you trust me with the, even the most precious things to you? And what God's holiness means is that we can trust it. We can open our hands. That every time we close our hands around the things the most precious to us, we're actually disbelieving in his holiness and his perfection. And he's asked me that over and over again with each new kid, with each new decision in life. Do you trust me? Am I trustworthy? Will you open your hands with the most precious things? Because I will be faithful with those. So the question is for you, what do you have your grip around? And what do you need to release to your Holy Father today? Because he is good and faithful all the time, always, consistently, day and night. Remember Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So why is God's holiness good news? It's good news because we can trust him completely. Second question, if God is holy and I am not, how is his character communicated to me or given to me or transferred to me? We learn that God's holiness is that he is altogether separate and distinct. I don't know what that does to you, but to me that's kind of an intimidating thing to step into. It can be a demotivator when it comes to being trying to be like God. But what's really crazy is that God is absolutely holy and we are not, but he invites us into his holiness. And not only does he invite us into his holiness, but he gives us the tools to become more like him. So I'd love to spend some time just really quickly this morning looking at that because I want us to go away with not, um, not the idea that we can't become like God, but that he actually tells us that we can and how. So turn with me to... John 15, we're going to start in verses 4 and 5. This idea is all over scripture, but this is my favorite spot to go. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Jesus tells us that when we abide in him and he in us, there's a product that comes out. There's something that's produced. And that fruit is many things, but it is, all, it is most definitely his character being formed in us or produced in us. The first and most important thing to God's character being formed in me is that I need to rely on him to produce it. And I say that's the most important thing because it's often completely opposite, at least to my nature. I'm not sure about you, but at least to me. Uh, when Lily was 18 months old and starting to string some words together, there was a phrase that very quickly became her mantra, and it was, Mama, I do it all my very self. Very self. Like, there is no question. I want to do it all my very self. <laughs> and before we think I'm throwing Lily under the bus, isn't that how we think about most things that we want to grow in in our lives? It's that we look inside of ourselves and we see, what do I have? What can I offer? What can I do? Okay, I can do that thing. Or maybe we look inside ourselves and we think, oh, no, I don't have enough to give. I can't do that. I just might not, must not do it. But endeavoring to grow the character of God in our lives is a completely different thing. Jesus reminds us, along with his disciples, that apart from him, we can do nothing. We could try as hard as any human possibly could to be patient, but we will regularly fail. But when we abide in him, when we are with him, when we let his presence dwell in us, that patience is a character quality that God develops in us and then pours out of us. It grows naturally because God's presence is abiding in us. There's a second component also, and um, it's also really important. Verse 9 says this, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. Jesus tells us there's a partnership in place. We abide in him. We live in him. His presence abides in us. And what that produces is the fruit of godliness and also obedience. We walk it out. Peter says it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1. Starting from verse 3, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Those things were granted to us, given to us. They were not of our own doing. But then verse 5, it says, For this reason, because they have been given to us, make every effort. And then it goes on to give a list of what we should make every effort to do. So it's a partnership. We are gifted these things by being with Jesus and then we walk them out, making every effort to fan into the flame the gifts that he has given us. So how is God's character communicated to me? Jesus produces it in me as I abide in him, and it is practiced by me as I walk in obedience. Third question, why is this good news? I think it's pretty obvious that these things are good news to us, that the God who is holy and beyond us and perfect at all times invites us into his story. And through Jesus, um, we can become more like him. That's good news. The fact that he wants to reveal more and more of his character to us, that he allows us to be known by him as he changes us, that's really good news. 
John 15 also tells us that Jesus is telling us these things so that our joy would be full. That's really good news. But I also want to just take a minute and focus on why it's good news to the world around us. Our friend Terry often reminds us that um, that fruit is for someone else's benefit. And if an apple tree produces a crop of beautiful apples, it's not just for that tree that those apples are produced or are a benefit. It may make the tree healthier or look more beautiful, but ultimately someone else comes and picks those apples and is nourished by them. The same is true with the fruit that God produces in our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we are formed into the image of God in order to partner with him in helping people find their way back to God. God is making his appeal through us, broken vessels, jars of clay. That's earlier in 2 Corinthians. As God reveals his character more and more to us, we get to reflect that to a world who longs to know him. One of my favorite leaders puts it this way. The dream of God over your life is that you come alive in his presence and bring life to every environment, spilling contagious hope into hurting humanity. God has entrusted believers with an assignment to lead the earth to life. When God created humanity, he called it to shape the world. Man's first moments were filled with breath-giving honor. Adam knew he was not only treasured, but he was trusted. He was placed at the center of culture and invited to create from a place of intimate connection. The one who had received life was now charged with bringing life. I love that. The dream of God over your life is to come alive in his presence and to bring life to every environment. So why is that good news? God invites us into his story. The holy God that is so unlike us draws us close and we can trust him. As we abide in him and his presence abides in us, he reveals more of his character to us and forms it in our lives. And then we get to carry that hope into a world that desperately needs it. I think that's really good news, and I wouldn't want any of us to miss out on being a part of that story.